0: There was a a few results just go the wrong way here and there, a decision of penalty, um, and just didn't get through to it. And it was that way, just so close, but yet so far now.
1: In the summer of 1988, the Republic of Ireland soccer squad had qualified for its first major international tournament, Euro 88, in West Germany. The tournament was due to kick off in June of that year. Ireland was coming out of a major economic slump. Unemployment and emigration was high, but for one glorious week in 1988, the country was unified like never before as football took centre stage. But this story begins two years earlier, as Big Jack Charlton, a World Cup winner with England in 1966, was the surprise choice to take over from own hand as the Republic of Ireland's team
2: manager. I was in a hotel in Birmingham and I got a phone call from Jimmy Arnfield of the Daily Express in Manchester to tell me I'd got the job. Then I went down to the FAI office and discussed things like contracts and money, which was strange because I hadn't even discussed anything like that with them before I took the job. So I had the job and and then we discussed what I was to be paid. As it happens, I didn't get very much. I, I think I got a third of what I had been earning at Newcastle. So I didn't take the job with the Irish for the money. Back then, eight nations
1: qualified for the championships with only the group winners qualifying. It really was Europe's elite. The Republic of Ireland's group included the favourites Bulgaria, Scotland, Belgium and the group's whipping boys Luxembourg. Supporters and media didn't really know what to make of Charlton when he took over as manager. Gabriel Egan was RTE radio soccer commentator at that time.
3: I think he had a very simple view of football, but a very clever view of football, it has to be said. And, and people underestimate Jack Charlton, and maybe and have done it at their peril in the past. He was very astute. Uh, I know he had a problem with people's names, and he was very forgetful at times, in, in a comical kind of way, and, and great company and great fun to be with in those situations. But he was very astute. And, uh, you know, he said to me once, actually, some years later, not long before he actually left himself, left the Ireland job, that he had come up with a way of playing, that he always believed in and his his theory was basically that players continental players in particular uh, particularly defenders and he was a centre half in his time um, they were given too much time on the ball they had too much time to uh, put themselves in a position uh, to counteract a move to make a clearance to make a tackle he said and his whole basis of his operation was to really put them under pressure the famous cliche put them under pressure but that's what it was all about get right up tight but uh, in the beginning it wasn't the most attractive style of football it, it was never everybody's cup of tea, let's be honest about it. This direct style, up and down, and playing long balls into the corners, all this kind of thing. But my word was it effective.
4: Well, I guess it would be nice I
3: One of the most notable differences with
1: Charlton's squad was the range of different accents. Ray Houghton, for example, was Scottish-born.
5: when Jack first came in I mean uh, you know the things about him are legendary he didn't know everyone's name he might know your first your Christian name but he didn't know your surname or vice versa you know it was one of them things with him but he soon got up to speed with it Uh, what I do know about Jack uh, when he first came in he was very focused you know he, he wanted to make a huge success of it Um, He treated you like men, which doesn't always happen at at football clubs. Never mind international football. Sometimes managers can be a bit pedantic and want you. You've got to be there at seven o'clock when he says so, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and don't do this, and don't do that.
4: (laughs)
6: Impression of him was that he was confident. He was such a big man. Paddy Bonner. He spoke very bluntly, and uh, I think that was the first impression. You know that he was. He knew what he wanted. Um, he uh, came in around the players, um, and. Uh, he made us all feel fairly, fairly at home. You know, you you, you come along to these you know international
5: um, teams and you're very edgy, and very nervous, and that's the last thing you need when you want to go and play football. You want to feel relaxed and you want to feel that you know that you're confident in the you and the manager believes in you. Know, I think that's what Jack did for the players. He, he treated us like like men, and he knew that we would look after ourselves and get ourselves ready for you know the matches that were. Up and coming. I was qu- quite
2: relaxed on the rules. Sometimes, like sometimes, it would start singing in the bus. We love you, Jackie, which meant can we stop at the next pub and have a pint? So we would stop at the pub and have a pint. Because I don't see anything wrong in having a pint of beer, as long as it's controlled and as long as you only have one or have two or have as many as you say they can have. There has to be and I always feel um an element of fear in what you do. They can they can have a, they can make a joke out of me. They can have a laugh at me. They did at times, and uh, but they know how far to push me. When I get angry, I get angry, but I don't get angry very, very often. But I like to think even then, they've, they've, uh, they've enjoyed the time of the Irish. The one thing that had to be was that the players had a want to come and play. They wanted to be part of the business. They wanted to come and perform. they wanted to be. I mean, the players still wanted to come in, even if they were injured, they wanted to come in and spend the time.
1: But at the start of the campaign to qualify for Euro '88, expectation from fans was low. Liverpool legend Ronnie Whelan was one of the players Charlton inherited when he took over in 1986.
0: You know what? When I think back, on it wasn't—it was—it was, it was a like of a case where we didn't miss out on it because we were not good enough to get there. You know, it wasn't really a heartbreaking situation that it's always so so close. I don't think we we really ever believed that we because of the size of the country because of the players we had I don't know what it was but we were never one of those I never felt we were the sort of team squad um, supporters even never expected that we because you weren't really expected you know Ireland are expected now to get to championships because they've been in World Cups and European Championships but back then they'd never qualified for one so there was no expectations on us there was an expectation of go out and try and do your best and try and beat top teams if you can you know the likes if, if people are coming to Lansdowne Spain or whatever you know let's beat them we're not going to qualify but let's try and beat the big clubs but it changed
1: Maybe the country didn't buy into it and indeed some of the players weren't happy playing under the style Charlton imposed upon them in previous campaigns, the Republic of Ireland had, time and time again, been at the receiving end of contentious refereeing decisions. But in the first match in the qualifiers against Belgium in Brussels in September 1986, trailing 2-1 late in the game, things changed.
7: And Belgium, cushioned by that goal by Shifo, 20 minutes from the end, and the points almost within their grasp. No offside here, Stapleton going in on
8: Bap and pulled down Surely, yes, yes! Penalty kick! So now, Liam Brady, who missed the penalty for Arsenal in the Cup Winners' Cup final here in 1980. The penalty shootout against Valencia. Liam, don't do it this time. 2-2! The point is saved!
1: Standing in goal that day was 26-year-old Paki Bonner, who hailed from Burtonport in County Donegal,
6: and who was playing his club football at Celtic at the time. And that's the thing about Jack was... He had luck, and as we go through this European Championship qualifier, we can talk about many instances where, where we had a bit of luck, and this was one of them. And uh, I think Frank got the penalty. I think Jean-Marie Flaff was in goals and, and, and he's flaffed at it, <laughs> and uh, took Frank down, and, and um, we scored, uh, and, and that was a big result. That was a start of the campaign, and you know, not not losing uh, away from home, getting some sort of result was was crucial. I think.
1: After Belgium, Ireland got another draw against Scotland in the second game of the group, a truly horrendous 0 0 stalemate at Lansdowne Road. In the return fixture at Hamden Park in February 1987, they needed a win.
7: Background, Scotland showing their under pressure how quickly they can break and I, attack. I think the one thing about the game, gave is both teams are going to go at each other. Ireland, they're away again, Ireland. And both are attacking each other. Ireland have kicked quickly, to quickly inside to Lawrence and he's into the middle of the area, he shoots! back of the net. Ireland need one goal to nil. Six minutes gone. They won that free kick midway inside. The Scottish half of the field was way helpful was alert to the situation, saw what was on, took the free kick very quickly.
1: If Charlton was to take the country to the finals in West Germany, he had to think outside the box. And he went about trying to strengthen the squad by implementing the so-called granny rule rustling up players whose Irish lineage went back to their grandparents.
2: There was only John which who had a grandmother. The rest of them all had direct parentage into the Republic of Ireland. As far as I know, they all did. So they all had an affiliation with the country anyway. We used the rule which is applicable to every country in Great Britain. Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England and the Republic of Ireland all have the same if you can get a passport, you can play for your country. And the passport goes back to your grandmother. Just one grandmother, not your grade, just one back to your grandmother. So I wasn't doing anything that hadn't already been done in English cricket, in, British, in English football, in Scottish football, and, and in Northern Ireland football. People say that I abused it. I didn't abuse it. I needed to get players of quality to produce a team that could play football against the best teams in the world.
1: As the qualifying group unfolded, Charlton's style of football and management wasn't pleasing everyone. Liam Brady was the star of Irish football at that point and who plied his trade at the likes of Arsenal and Juventus in Italy, but who didn't appear to be too enamoured by the big Geordie.
6: Liam was a star and he was you know coming back he was out in Italy at the time and he was coming back And but Jack wanted him to play off the front rather than going back getting the ball at the back and taking it off centre halves and full backs and playing through midfield and he wanted to change Liam's perception of, 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 his, of the game he had all the ability he was never going to uh, and um, I think there was a few uh, in Liam's mind he didn't believe probably in the way that we were playing knocking the ball along quickly and him having to get up the pitch and get it off the front of players um, and that took a bit of a bit of effort and time uh, for the two of them to establish that together.
1: Charlton also fell out with David O'Leary, a top class centre half who was dropped for refusing to play in an end of season tournament in Iceland as he wanted to take his family on holidays. Ronnie Whelan too wasn't one of Jack's biggest fans.
0: I, I, I wasn't 100% sure whether he ever trusted me to do the job that he wanted to do because I may have sometimes gone against his his wishes and passed the ball across midfield, but it was what I seen, and there was uh, there's times when you want to pass it, and but you know you've got to put it in behind the fullback, and you, and you know there's no point in even coming to look for it in midfield because it's going to be launched over the fullback's head, so that that's a bit it's a difficult job as well because all you're doing is trying to pick up bits and pieces all over the place but it was getting results. <laughs> mm.
1: Charlton had, at his disposal, some of the greatest players to ever wear the green shirt. But managing a football team isn't always about the football. There's other factors at play, including human frailties. Charlton appeared to have a hands-on approach, especially to the mercurial Paul
2: McGrath. When you've got an alcoholic problem, you get it from wherever, and nobody ever sees you take it or do it or have it. But Paul had good at it. But we kept it very much an in-house thing it was never let get to the press I mean we've hunted for Paul all over Dublin I mean he disappeared to Israel he found me from Israel once when he should have been with us asking if he could come back I hear talking about it funnily enough you know because there were so many times that I could have wrung his neck I mean I've had people sleeping outside his bedroom door so he couldn't get out it, it, it caused us a lot of hassle and a lot of aggravation to the, to the credit of the police force in uh, Dublin If I wanted to find out where Paul was I phone the police and they would go and find him for us And tell us where he was And uh, we had a medium in off planes Sometimes he would change the plane deliberately Instead of flying from Manchester he would go to Birmingham Or he would fly in from Birmingham If he was in Birmingham he would fly from Manchester But we we, we we had a little deal with our Lingus as well And they should tell us which flight he was on coming in so we could pick him up and take him to the hotel and keep an eye on him.
1: Despite drawing in Belgium and winning in Scotland, it looked unlikely that Charlton would qualify his team for Euro 88. They were beaten away by Bulgaria, and after another ghastly home draw, this time against the Belgians, the group came down to the last game as the Bulgarians faced the Scots on a rainy afternoon in Sofia. It was out of our hands. The Republic led the group, but Scotland had no chance of qualifying, and Bulgaria only needed a point. T Television took a gamble and decided to show the game live. I remember being with a small group of Irish fans, watching, hoping and praying
3: for an unlikely result from Sophia. Jack Charlton was over in Dublin and one of the sponsors at the time held a reception in the middle of town uh, and, and, and uh, in a bar somewhere. They, they, they hosted this reception and were invited to come in with Jack Charlton to watch the game. Uh, happening in Scotland playing in Bulgaria that night and it was a big kind of uh, get together and it was kind of I suppose if we weren't going to make it then it was a few drinks and let's drown our sorrows.
9: and he did well to get away there oh look at that that was always on but advantage is played good refereeing and it's come through now to Mackay and it's there It's there! Gary Mackay, the substitute, has put
8: Scotland in the lead! And Ireland is surely on their way to Germany! What a remarkable story in Sofia! And full credit to the referee, Helmut Kohl, who played a superb advantage when Gordon Jury was cruelly fouled. But it came to Mackay and the youngster on his very first appearance in the Scottish shirt has put Scotland ahead. And the unlikeliest of results is now really on with just three minutes to go. But I will walk find
3: Remember number of people even coming out at that reception at one o'clock in the morning or whatever, in a bit of a daze, what's happened here? We've actually gone through to a point. What happens next? Where do we go from here? Nobody knew. So we had our neighbour Scotland
1: to thank for ensuring the Republic of Ireland had qualified for its first major football championship. The rest of the country was somewhat indifferent. It was only football after all. But for Jack's Green Army, it was salvation at last and for the players, something of a shock. We were on the march to West Germany. It was still seven months away but it was a new sensation. I mean, it was really a
5: phone call I got from a journalist who told me that you're going to the Euros, and we were we were qualified, which was amazing. And it wouldn't happen today because all the you know the group matches in Euros now, or the World Cup qualifiers, are all pay, played at the same time. On the same day, whereas back then, you know, it was a bit of a mishmash, and we ended up finishing our campaign, and there was still a game to go for Bulgaria. But it was just fantastic, you know, the, the thought that you were going to go and compete against seven other nations. By the way, back then, there was only one that qualified, there was no playoff. You know, there wasn't anything you could come second and get in with a chance. You had to be top of your group. Uh, so that was a, a huge achievement in itself.
0: Yeah, something went our way um, very unexpectedly. Again, we weren't expected to, to qualify, it looked out of no Possibility that we were going to qualify, but then when you hear the result from that game, it's like, God, we've we've qualified. We're in a major championship now. Don't, don't close
3: 1988
1: rolled around. A 70-foot giant was washed up in Dublin Bay as Jonathan Swift's Gulliver visited Dublin for the city's millennium celebrations, and the Eurovision Song Contest was held in the nation's capital as Pat Kenny and Michelle Rocker hosted a cliffhanger. Ireland having won it the previous year with Johnny Logan's Hold Me Now. Switzerland won by one point with the then unknown Celine Dion.
0: Touch, touch me the way you used to do. I
7: know.
1: So instead of having the summer off, the Republic of Ireland squad had to change their travel plans and gear up for Euro 88 in West Germany, where they joined the other eight nations. And after the draw, they were in with England, the USSR and the Netherlands.
7: For the last time. Hold me
9: now, don't cry.
1: Bobby Charlton, winner of 106 England caps and their all-time leading goal scorer, was full of admiration for his brother's achievements and what it had done for the country.
8: I was I was a little surprised, really, because Irish have never really given anyone a hint that they would... They would uh, maybe go abroad, if you would call England abroad anyway, for a national team manager. Uh, but they, they took the bull by the horns and they did it, and it's worked out a treat for them, and, uh, and I hope that uh, there's a lot more to come for it yet. Yeah. But he's given them... Oh, Jack, He's given them more pride in the, in the football, the sport. Well, I say football reluctantly because it's not the only football code here, but, but he's given the Irish something that they've never had in any sport. I mean, they will get more exposure at the European Championships or if next time they qualify for the World Cup than any other sport has ever given them in this country. And I, I hope that they do well. They've done well up to now because um, it's a terrific achievement to actually get to the Nations Cup final to compete against the best in Europe when you think
1: of how they had to qualify. So football fans and the players geared up for the finals. Jack Charlton decided to keep the squad in Dublin rather than travel to a base in West Germany prior to the three games against England, the USSR, and the Netherlands. One of the aspects of Charlton's reign was that once the squad came in for games, they stayed together.
6: It may not have gone down too
1: well with Dublin-based players at first, but it contributed to squad
6: unity. We didn't go abroad. We 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 uh, stayed in Ireland to, to do our preparation. Uh, we were out looking and finishing house, and I think that was good actually because um, we could relax. We could go in town, and the hype was beginning to uh, to show around, around the city. And um, um, and we did everything together. Then, no matter what, whether we went to the pictures, whether we went uh, out into town. Whatever it was, um, we all did it together and, and I think that was that was great to build a real team spirit. And I think Jack looked at that um, and, and that was one of his first decisions and, and a very good decision.
1: An official Euro 88 song was released and sung by the squad, making its debut on Ireland's most watched TV programme, The Late Late Show, hosted by Gay Byrne. The players had the scripted song lyrics in their hands as they sung. So had many in the audience, who in truth had yet to be bitten by the qualification bug. The national anthem of our glorious Irish soccer team in the European Championship. This is the official anthem and it's now on sale, proceeds to charity. Are we standing by? Hey, here we go. (laughs)
5: you
8: uh-huh.
1: song was penned by the late Michael Carwood, a sports journalist with the now defunct Irish press, with proceeds going to charity. We'll Charton shows his 20 players for the finals, no place for the injured and suspended Liam Brady, Mark Lawrence had also missed out injured, while David O'Leary was left out. The squad comprised of two goalkeepers, Paddy Bonner and Jerry Payton. Defenders Chris Morris, Chris Hewton, Mick McCarthy, John Anderson and Kevin Moran, aged 32, and who, along with Peyton, was the oldest member of the squad. In midfield, Ronnie Whelan, Paul McGrath, Ray Houghton, Tony Galvin and Kevin Sheedy. And the strikers, John Aldridge, Frank Stapleton, Tony Cascarino, David Kelly, John Byrne, John Sheridan and 21-year-old Niall Quinn, the youngest member of the squad.
3: Thousands of Republic of Ireland supporters begged, stolen, borrowed to get themselves to the finals. The great thing about that Irish team, they had a great rapport with the with the supporters. Uh, and the supporters were always around the hotel, the team hotel. In fact, very often the supporters were staying at the team hotel, which maybe wasn't the best, sometimes. Because when you had players coming down for their meals, from their floor, getting out of the lifts, there were supporters waiting at the lift for photographs, autographs, whatever. When they came out of the dining room, they were waiting for them again, when they go to it's constant but in general the Irish players were always very very good to the supporters they always had gave them time and had time for them always stopped always spoke to them always got the photograph taken always signed the autographs and it was a great relationship and and it meant that the supporters felt part of it all then you know it it was we not them and us the great thing about it then I suppose was too that the team the media and the supporters were all together whereas now it's very very different the players are much more remote they're removed from the supporters more they're certainly removed from the media Uh, and your opportunity to get to know the players and build up a relationship with them uh, which we all did in those days Uh, and that was a good thing it was good for all of us good for us and it was good for the players it kept them maybe grounded a little bit and it gave us an insight a bit more into what they were going through Uh, that's all changed now it's completely different so uh, it'll never be the same as that again
1: and first up, the Neckarstadion in Stuttgart. Ireland's opening game of the group against England, the old enemy.
5: We were meant to be the cannon fodder. We were meant to be the ones who finished bottom of the group with no points and everyone else would have beaten us comfortably. Uh, but we knew that we could do OK because when you looked at the players that we had, we had players from Liverpool, Man United, Celtic, who had had a very good season. You know, we we had Paddy, we had Big Mick, we had Chris Morris, we had Chrissy had been at Spurs, Tony Galvin at Spurs. So we had, you know, players who'd won things as well. We knew how to win. Uh, and, and we weren't overawed by playing England You know, we knew they were, the expectations on them were huge and the expectation on ours wasn't anywhere near so we could go out and relax and play a game
10: Over the next 48 hours thousands of Irish fans will be arriving in Germany particularly Stuttgart of course for the European Championships which start tonight when West Germany play Italy Ireland's first big match isn't of course until Sunday when we face England but the excitement has been building up for several weeks For many of the Irish fans, the visit to Germany will be the trip of a lifetime. So what can they expect when they get to Stuttgart? Des Cahill, lucky man, is staying with the Irish team and a small number of Irish fans who've arrived already in Stuttgart and he joins me now on the telephone. Des, what are you all up to over there?
9: Well, obviously, apart from working very hard, we're following the Irish team preparing for Sunday. Now, the preparations so far have been fairly low-key because, as you know, the Irish team were together in Ireland for about three weeks before coming out. But the city... Basically, there aren't many Irish fans here yet. It's a magnificent city. The Irish fans, I think, are going to love it. But we've had about, last night we were in town, there were about 20, 30 English supporters, and we met about five or six Irish supporters. Now, they expected ten or 12,000. They won't be arriving in until tonight and tomorrow on the charter flight.
10: Des, you've been talking to some of the British uh, journalists who are with the English team. Um, How do they feel about Sunday? Are they apprehensive about uh, facing Ireland?
9: I think they are because everybody in Britain especially expects Britain to beat Ireland as the Germans do. There's a lot of British media people coming to the hotel, as indeed Germans, Dutch huge media presence here in Germany. Ireland getting massive exposure, of course. But I think the British are very cautious and nervous about playing Ireland because they have everything to lose. They're expected to beat us. We're not expected to beat them. So if we do well, it's a bonus for us. But all the pressure will be on the English team. The media attention is extraordinary. There'll be a television audience of about 2,000 million people. An extraordinarily high television audience. Huge exposure for Ireland from that point of view. Africa, Asia, it's going live everywhere some of the requests for media accreditation have come from rather unlikely sources that the Penguin News of the Falkland Islands and a West German prison wants to send six inmates and a guard to cover the games for the prison newspaper
4: first
1: Bobby Robson's men were massive favourites Glenn Hoddle Gary Lineker Peter Beardsley and captain Brian Robson were top class players and once again the English press had built them up as potential world beaters the England manager was dismissive of the Republic's chances against his side
8: it's some years now since we played each other and to uh, you know open our group with each other uh, is a fascinating game and uh, naturally both teams are, will be looking to win and get off to a good start it's very important in these tournaments you know to win the first match I mean Jackie will know that as a you know top-class manager and now is an international manager and as a World Cup player with England but you know in a sense it's it's a new experience for all your players and uh, you know it's uh, it's not an ordeal but you know they are now nerve-wracking occasions sure. and um, you know and you in a sense your country hasn't got that experience so uh, it's a new issue for you and um, so it's you know it's it's going to be tough
2: I'd watched international matches with England being played and nobody ever bothered uh, or troubled the fullbacks. Everybody really played sort of the Italian-type game where when you lose position, you get behind the ball, you defend in front of your goals, you let them have possession position up to a certain part and then you start to close them down. And I felt that uh, the defenders were never made to play. We were never put under any real pressure. And I just thought, well, maybe if we put the defenders under pressure early. Um, because in international football, you're not allowed to just hunt the ball out or play safe. You're expected from the back to be able to control the ball and play it. So I thought we might exploit that. What I wanted to do was very simple way of playing. Because in international football, I felt the system had to be simple that we were going to play.
1: Noel King was RT Radio's co-commentator in Germany. He didn't give Jack Charlton's side much of a chance, but there was a chink of light. England had played a full-blooded friendly against the local side just three days before the game, and a number of players were injured, including playmaker Glenn Hoddle, who could only find himself on the bench for the game. If
8: you take the teams man for man, I would certainly have to favour England. Um, it may not be a very patriotic thing to say, but I think the value of the English team is, is far in excess of the Irish one. Uh, there's a couple of interesting points in relation to preparation. Obviously, the 10-match sequence we've had without a defeat is very impressive. Um, and we're ahead on points in that regard on England. But more interestingly, is since we've come here, the Irish camp, there would appear to be a terrific atmosphere in it. Um, and compare that to the little bit of chaos that's now in, in existence with England having maybe doubts about three players following their match um, only three days before before the game. And I would say that that has will have a major influence on the players, mm. and it will instil confidence in Charlton's tactics and preparation, which could be seen on the pitch. The English
0: press—we're all talking about this team could win the Euros. This, blah blah blah. But we play against them players week in week out. We all know what they're like. They no any way much better than us. You know, we all felt that we, we'd go out and we had a good chance. The players felt and the squad felt that we had a great chance of beating England. It was one of those tense intense games because you knew that there was also bragging rights against your teammates when you go back at the end of the tournament. Um but we knew now there was a little bit of expectation on us. We we're in a big championship. Don't let anybody down. Um so there, it was it was pressure on that game, the England game. We knew there was thousands and thousands coming over to Germany one way or the other. Um it was brilliant but I think they all knew as well this is our chance to beat England this is a great chance we've got to beat England um, and they all wanted to be there A first major championship as well everybody wants to go there so um, yeah, the support was brilliant it always has been so I'm not just going to say that England game it was exceptional but the support was always good for Ireland
1: Sunday the 15th of June Stuttgart the Republic of Ireland against England Kickoff, 2.30 Irish time
6: then suddenly the game came, came on us and um, I can't remember too much about going up to the stadium or getting in there but I do remember walking out and the national anthem and that that moment when your own national anthem is played for the very first time at a, at a major championships and the feeling of pride and the feeling of tension and the feeling of all those things for that sort of three or four minutes that you have to stand um, and, and it was a, a, a warm day. Um, that was the other thing that was going through our mind. Could it be handled, the heat, and so on?
7: So, so that's it. an a moment in Irish sports. Aral Levine, the strains been played for the first time in history in a major soccer championship finals. The finals of the European Championships here in the Neckar Stadium in Stuttgart. Ireland's first match in Group 2.
1: Gabriel Egan had his own problems. He'd started the build up to the game on a phone line supplied by a winning journalist before finally, just before kickoff, the lines to Dublin were restored.
7: That he will wake and wait and hope to do it again today. The games that have been so important. And Stable and just looking looking there and talking to Robson they shake hands again as the referee and the linesman uh, the linesman just looking at the watch and it's a roundabout turn Ireland will now have to vacate that goal to the right but, uh, that sea of green white and gold up to our right and banners from everywhere in Ireland there's banners from Clonmel there's ones from Colrain there's ones from Crumlin and Coolock, and really any place you care to mention and a place called the Village Inn not quite sure where, but there's uh, a few of those, I dare say, in Ireland. Gary Lineker and Peter Bisley standing over the ball. The two danger men for England. The referee from East Germany looks at his watch. And the game is underway. Here we go. History is happening here in the Neckar Stadium. Ireland involved. In the first few seconds of the European Championship Finals, England in possession, Chris Waddle on the right touchline... Then, line. six minutes <laughs> in... in the of the field, Kevin Warren to take it, right foot hits it long towards the left side of the English penalty, area. stapled in, surrounded by two white shirts, Galvin gets the ball, looking for Aldridge, England defence in a mess, John Aldridge going for the high ball, trying to look it down for Hope and goal! And they've scored! Ray Houghton less than six minutes gone in the game John Ulrich the Liverpool 1-2 John Ulrich heading down to Ray Houghton looping header from of him completely beat Peter Shelton a nine and a goal up just less than six minutes played
5: I remember Jack afterwards saying well, don't you ever score that early in the game as long as 84 minutes of his life but uh, well, you, you know you can't legislate when you're going to score in matches but when the opportunity arises you've just got to take it and that's what happened I hadn't scored an international goal before, you know, I think a lot, I, was, I was getting a lot of stick from the lads, you know, good banter and from Jack, you know, it's about time you started scoring. Uh, and they were right, you know, I was, I was wasteful in front of goal prior to that. But to, to come into that game uh, against England, and such an important game, and to score your first international goal was just um, amazing.
0: We've gone one up against the English. now we have something to hold on to as well. You know, if we keep a clean sheet, we're off and running, um, you couldn't have asked for a better start. And we're not on the pitch. We're not thinking about the crowds and how happy they are. We're just thinking about, yes, good, we've got ourselves in a lead now. Now let's see if we can push on, if not, see if we can hold on.
1: Ireland had 84 minutes to hold on after Houghton scored. And in goal, Packy Bonner was having the game of his life. Glenn Hoddle came on for Neil Webb for England on the arm mark and the pressure intensified.
7: Bonner with a free kick. We have played a minute of stoppage time. The header goes in and Bonner somehow saves it. Packy Bonner. Like save as the, went in. the England players
9: with their hands on the head they just can't quite
6: believe it and you get one of those days where just everything goes right for you um, you know whether it's uh, sticking your hand out and making a save or making that perfect save or maybe hitting it off your knee or, or your shoulder or whatever it was never going to go on the net and I think that was one of those days for me and as uh, uh, people ask me now about the most the most memorable day in my international career and I think it's down to that particular game against England where you had a shutout, um, you had scored early, you had to defend as well as you could and you had have a, a bit of luck on your side and of course we were playing the old enemy England and uh, uh, in the first ever first qualifying game in a, in a major championship and to beat them it was a memorable, memorable day.
7: keep that out, we couldn't see from there, he got his body as the ball is called in, it's dipping in, and over it goes, the referee looks at the watch, and it's, has he blown the final whistle, yes he has, and the place erupts in Stuttgart, because Ireland have beaten England by a goal to nil, the Irish substitutes manager Jack Charlton, they're all out on the field of play, arms around one another, the Irish fans to our right in their thousands are going wild,
1: there may have been a certain indifference to Ireland playing in Euro 88, but now that England had been vanquished, the country set up and took notice, and the fans in Germany celebrated. Hard-working reporter Des Cahill sent his report back to RT Radio's flagship news programme Morning Ireland the day after the win in Stuttgart.
9: Well, the scenes at the Irish Hotel last night were incredible as family and friends, as the players packed the bar for a sing-song that lasted a few hours. The players had to go to bed at midnight, but that didn't stop everyone else from continuing the celebrations, well into the morning. Well, apart from family and friends, plenty of supporters got past the security men, and they too enjoyed the celebrations. Uh, I'm Victor Byrne. And I'm from Dublin. And Seamus oh. Shem- Brown Shem- from-, from Dublin, also. I'm also Seamus Nugent from uh, Dublin. How far is Dublin from, I'm from uh, Temple Oak. Well, it was some day today, wasn't it? Fantastic. You're up here now at the team hotel. How many autographs have you got? Sheer perseverance. You've got to be- <laughs> practically all. Uh, Only one or two to go, and I'm happy. Where were you in the ground? Were you behind the Irish goal or...? In Hill 16, it looked like to me. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, It was a dream of a dream that came true. What was the atmosphere like in the middle of the Irish support? Electrifying. Absolutely electrifying. Words cannot describe it. I'm proud to have said that I was there and witnessed it and heard it and seen it. Magic.
3: After the England victory, the famous victory in Stuttgart... We're heading then for Hanover. Off we go to, for the next one against Russia. And I remember driving up; the whole gang was in the car driving up the Autobahn in the hired car. And we were passing vans and camper vans and bits of trucks and half cars and all sorts of things. Oh, with Ireland flags out them! I and every time you went past, the fellas were cheering and roaring. It was carnival time. It was—it was just unbelievable. I'm
4: a
1: possibility now existed that after beating England and the USSR having beaten the Dutch in their opening tie, the Republic of Ireland could now make the semi-finals. All that was needed was a win against the tough USSR side in Hanover. It's reckoned to this day that it was the finest display the Republic ever gave in the era.
0: The way it happened was we played football, we got the ball on the ground, we passed it round, we created chances and that that, that makes you wonder if we had to play like that all the time could we have gone forward but that's something we'll never know but it wasn't any anything we'd got together and said
1: did that annoy him oh,
0: I don't know I don't I'm not too sure he probably got annoyed because we give the goal away pretty easy you know I, I, I he would never say um yeah, we'll do it that way it'll still be back to his way and I don't, I don't know how it happened or why it happened but did the russia did the Soviets drop off too much? there was no room behind him so we had to sort of play at some stage or we were given room to play I don't know I can't remember but we just we did play really, really well.
7: So Ireland will restart the game with a throw. It's Mick McCarthy, the long throw specialist, to take a long one from the far side into the Soviet penalty area. It'll go surely 38 and a half minutes gone. Ireland still looking for the lead goal in the match. The ball for McCarthy hit in deep, stable in, and the volley goes in! Goal! Ireland, a marvellous goal! The volley coming in there from Ronnie Whelan, just inside the penalty area. What a goal! To sabre. <laughs>
0: That wasn't my position, to be on the edge of the box for a long throw from Mick. Sometimes you wonder, well, why was I there? I'd usually be dropping off to see if it comes out to me. But on that occasion, I took a chance and it dropped near me and I, and I tried something. I didn't connect with it really full-on perfect. It was the bottom of my shin the top of my foot. And I knew it was floating. And as you fall and you see it floating, you think that he could struggle to get this because it can, it's just going to keep floating over him. And luckily it floated over him and went in.
9: Lonely.
1: Ireland were 16 minutes from a second win after Whelan's remarkable goal and it seemed as if they could make the semi-finals in only their second match Ireland, however, couldn't
6: hold on The goal itself um, was unfortunate because going into that I think that was probably maybe seven or eight games we had gone without losing a goal Um, and when you look at the goal it was sort of one that was played to the edge of the box Kevin went to head the ball, and I think Belanov got his foot to it.
7: Demianenko playing it for oh
6: danger here, and it sort of was dropping down between the edge of the penalty box, uh, and 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 the pe- uh, and the penalty spot itself. Danger here. And Kudryavtsev came on and controlled it and almost knocked it right through where, where he could only beat me. almost through my legs. And that, and so we were very disappointed because we deserved that night to win that particular game.
8: But suddenly, the Irish concentration lapsed, has got in with just 16 minutes to
6: go. And Bonner stood his ground for as long as he could, but was beaten between his legs. Oleg up,
7: the Soviets' golden boy, has made it 1 1.
5: It was, uh, we were very disappointed that we didn't score more goals, and, and it, we would have qualified uh, that night. You know, with the two victories. Um, that's football. You know, you got it's about ninety minutes and what you do over the course of the, the whole game, not just for seventy-five. Uh, but very disappointed to come off. We are just a point from that one, but really proud of the way we played. <laughs>
1: After drawing with the USSR, it was all down to the game against the Netherlands at the Stadion in Gelsenkirchen. A draw would have been enough for our qualification, but it was fraught with danger, as the Dutch had to win.
2: We were still on track, but it meant that we then had to get a result against the Dutch. Yeah, Gelsenkirchen, again, we had to travel
6: down into the middle of Germany. Um, got into Gelsenkirchen, um, we were playing against probably the, the best Dutch team for many a year, and um, when you when you look at them with Van Basten, Gullet, um Jan Vouders in the middle of the pitch, uh, Rijkaard, Koeman at the back, Van in goals, <laughs> an exceptional team, um, and it uh, was boiling hot. I was bo- I always remember in the game looking at Kevin at one time, and he was his his lips were pure white with salt. Um, and um, it was really difficult for us because we had just played two difficult matches, two sapping matches and uh, suddenly we had to have our full of energy going in against a really good Dutch team but we we held ourselves really well and we played well and we had the odd chance maybe to to score Um, and um, going right up until that goal.
7: Chance for Van Basten, Van Basten trying to play Hullet again, the good crunching header comes in from Kevin and to play it out, Holland recover and come forward again with voutis the ball play forward, Hullet now on the penalty area, his right side, he's been closed down by Morin and Hutton. here comes the cross from the right though. good header away by McGrath, Koeman trying to volley in the first time, it's out to the ball, takes a
5: It looked offside. I think Ronald Koeman had a shot heading it in the ground, and he looked like they were in an offside position. Flag didn't go up, and then Vim Keith headed it. And I, I meet Vim to this day. I mean, he does the, uh, the Champions League matches uh, for a TV company, and I still say to him, "How did that ball go in?" Because you know, it was like someone playing cricket. You know, it was like, it was like a spin ball in cricket, because the ball was going <clears throat> three or four yards wide of the goal and then spun in. And I still, to this day cannot understand how it happened I've never seen it happen before in a football match so it was just their day and obviously it was that late in the game I think eight minutes before the end it was very difficult for us to you know get an equaliser uh, but it was just ifs buts and maybes you know you you come off the pitch afterwards you're extremely disappointed uh, the, the Dutch fans are overjoyed the Dutch players are overjoyed they're on their way to the semi-finals and you know you're going home um, and we put so much energy into the three matches and you know, your reward is nothing in the end.
1: It may have seemed that way at the time for Ray Houghton, but he, in fact, the whole squad was totally unaware of the effect their games at Euro 88 was having back in Ireland.
2: Yeah, but I mean, I can't explain. You can't, you know, that's going to give you so much, and they battled and run the bollocks off through. And uh, the heat of the day it's been incredibly hot out there, and the lads have worked and have done it. I'm pretty proud of a lot of my crew.
1: Ronnie Whelan said the game against the Dutch was just a bridge too far for the now exhausted squad.
0: Yeah, it was heartbreaking, but I think it was a bridge too far for us. You cannot keep playing the football we have to by chasing and running and have three games in eight days or whatever and be expected just to keep harrying people, harrying people. And we couldn't get near the Dutch. There were good players, very, very good players, Rijkaard, Hullett, all these players, Van Basten. Um, and we found it difficult to get the ball off them, but we were still running to try and chase them down and we're just getting more tired. and it's, it, it was, It was just too much for us to keep trying to do it.
6: Uh, very very unlucky for us uh, obviously the Dutch didn't care um, and the other thing that I always remember about about uh, the game was uh, the colours um, the Dutch obviously had their orange and they were sort of almost three-quarters way around the pitch and then the Irish and green and it was such a just a sea of colour right around um, fantastic atmosphere and um, uh, a game that was sort of very uh, on the edge right up till that sort of six or seven minutes. I think once they had scored, it was very difficult for us then to come back because it was too late in the game. We had no plan B, and I think later on when we got further on in the different competitions, even when you go to the States later on in 94, um, that was proven that we didn't have plan B, uh, really. Um, And, um, you know, I was in goals, of course, and, and I wouldn't have felt it the way some of the guys uh, out, in, out the pitch would have felt it but certainly uh, our tactic at that time was to keep putting them under pressure but you can only do that for so long uh, and then there's going to be moments in the game where you can't do it and as as a tournament goes on like that they are, uh, when you're into your third game and that you're suddenly depleted and uh, it was very, very difficult for us
1: With the Republic now out and the tournament continuing without them Ireland headed home to a hero's
5: welcome you know, When we came back on the plane um no one had any idea what was going on I mean, it was high jinks on the plane the lads full of banter you know, the, the usual shenanigans were going on you know, people falling asleep and then, you know, writing Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck on their shirt you know, as juvenile footballers do at that stage it was just, you know, having a, a real good laugh and it wasn't until about 15 minutes before we were about to your land that Jack turned around to the lad and said by the way, you better smarten yourself up There's, there might be a few people at the airport to see you
4: Dublin had never seen anything like it. Thousands of people thronged the airport to greet their heroes as they returned on the St. Jack 737, renamed for the day. They'd been there since early morning to be sure of getting a good view. Even the multi-storey car park was open for the fans who gave a tumultuous reception to the Irish team. The Taoiseach Mr. Hawi paid tribute to the team and particularly Jack Charlton. Well,
8: on your behalf, I want to confer on him the status of Honorary Irishman.
2: It worries me that maybe (laughs) what the reception would be like if we actually won something.
4: The crowd couldn't get enough of the team and were impatient to see them again as they made their way to the open top bus to begin the journey to Dublin city centre. It was then that the scale of the event became clear. Fans, several hundred thousand of them, lined the route to Dublin, through Santry, Whitehall, Drumcondra. Every single vantage point was taken up. And then as the soccer convoy turned into O'Connell Street, the amazing sight of 70,000 cheering people greeted the Irish team. It took three quarters of an hour for the bus to travel through O'Connell Street alone. Eventually the convoy reached Parnell Square where there were still more ecstatic fans. But now was the time for the players who'd worked so hard in Germany to have some fun. Stop was the Hugh Lane Gallery for a joint state civic reception, but the memory of the reception they'd received on Dublin streets would not be forgotten quickly.
2: It takes your breath away a little bit. You, you look at it and you go, what? I feel a bit guilty actually. We didn't win it. If we'd have won it and come back to that reception, you would have expected. But just to qualify, well, it, it's a bit strange to me.
4: But the reception was amazing. Oh, amazing,
2: amazing! Can't believe it. I'm still trying to get over it.
5: And we thought that there might be a hundred people maximum there, but no idea at the numbers that was there to, to, to welcome us back. And he, he, Jack's quite right. I mean, what would have happened and what would have been the crowds? like If we actually won the thing or even got to the semi-final or final, it would have been incredible. And it just showed you how the nation came together you know, to support the Irish team. It was absolutely immense. Um, some of the things we shouldn't have done, like singing songs on the top of the bus when you've had a few drinks, um, something that you do regret when you see yourself in later life but um it was just it was just a joyous moment and you know i think it's something that the lads will never forget you know just the interaction between the fans and the players has always been there it was there before i came been there for years and years the irish fans have always been synonymous with being around the players and sing songs and getting guitars out and having a laugh and a joke that's always been there there's always been a banter between them And long may that continue, and it was certainly there when I played.
1: Back in Germany, it was the Netherlands and the USSR, ironically the two teams that qualified from the Republic's group, that contested the final in Munich, which the Dutch won with goals in either half.
7: Erwin Koeman,
1: Van Basten, Hullett.
7: It's there! And Ruud Hullet has finally exploded onto the European stage.
5: Went for Van Basten.
7: Yes! What an astonishing
10: goal
4: from the top
10: striker of
4: the
10: tournament! <laughs>
1: Euro 88 led to a dramatic sea change in the people of Ireland. Not only us long-suffering football fans who had at last something to cheer about, but every colour, creed, young, old, man and woman came together like never before to celebrate. They may not have actually won anything, but that didn't matter. Irish international football had finally
6: come of age.
10: Jockser packed his German phrasebook and jumped leads for the van.
6: The way that it captured the imagination at that time, you know, the parents, even though people are 10, 12 years old or now in their sort of 40s, uh, they remember that occasion um, and, and they remember how they partied and how uh, they were out then kicking a the ball after and watching a game. So we
10: all agreed the was the man to drive the van.
0: That was one of the best times of my whole career, the, the, the Euro 88, because I played and I played the three games and scored. And... The coming back after it that, that's one of the standout moments of my career
5: we've sat back and reflected on it and if only comes out you know because of maybe we didn't believe in ourselves enough because we hadn't been there, we had no experience of it we didn't quite believe that we, we should be there or we were good enough to, to go even further but in 88 and 90 certainly there was opportunities for us to go further than we did uh, and there are a few regrets that maybe we should have had more belief in ourselves more confidence in ourselves that we had a right to be there alongside the top nations uh, and that we could, pe- could compete against them uh,
6: but we didn't quite believe it and we should have done. Proud because it was the first time. Uh, proud of the way probably we beat England. Proud of we it's probably set a bar that needs still... We had a, we had to raise that bar later on uh, and uh, I think it's still the barometer pr- for, for the Irish teams to come that they have to now qualify and they have to qualify and, and do well in the competition and I suppose for the team that's there now that's the standard that that they have to keep trying to achieve um, which is no bad thing and hopefully they can do better than us and maybe even go on and uh, dare I say it won a championship which would be fantastic
10: And next morning none of the experts gave us the slightest chance They said that the English team would lead us on a merry dance Oh with their union jacks all them English fans for victory they were set Until Ray Houghton got the ball and he stuck it in the net. Hey! Hey! Thank you! Love (laughs) it!